support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDW, we get that migrating your business to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't want to do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDW's experts can help you simplify the transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash Tech. Introducing Built to Last, a new podcast by American Express. I'm Elaine Welteroff, and I'm excited to host the debut season where we will be deep diving into the stories, history, and continued legacy of small businesses that shape American culture. Through these important conversations, we'll hear how the Black business leaders of our past have inspired today's Black-owned small businesses and communities. Join us for the debut season of Built to Last on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, uh, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and, and safe, and how much money does does our current water system cost in the U.S., what changes can we make and how we use water. I just listened to a fantastic episode called Water in Peace, Hydropolitics. It was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water. We've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions. And one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources. So now there's all of these uncomfortable, to say the least, conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources. Fantastic episode. The Waterline Podcast is an initiative of Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and industry. So check it out for everything you need to know about the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water. Search for Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hey everybody, very important episode today. Uh, What I guess I like to call a prerequisite episode. This is subject matter that Not only I've been kind of teasing for a little while, um, mentioning here and there a little bit in various episodes, but I've been meaning to dig into more and something that we're going to be addressing quite a bit more going forward. So this is an important one. And I got kind of the, um, the, uh, the kind of founder of, of this field, you might say the gadfather. You'll understand that joke uh, later on after you listen. But we're going to be talking a lot about the evolutionary basis of consumption and conspicuous consumption and how we advertise our resources and that sort of thing. Very important subject, in my opinion. One of my absolute favorite things to talk about. Um, it's I, I started reading about this stuff years ago and it really really grabbed me um 
and kind of changed the way that I, I look at how we how we spend money and how how we market things and all that good stuff. And the other reason why you have to listen to today is because there is a part two coming out next week. And, um, you know, that will only make sense if you've listened to this one. And part two is an even uh, better episode. This is a great episode. You're going to enjoy it. And part two, even better. This is just the nature of getting to know someone a little bit better and getting a little more comfortable and all of that sort of thing. So it went, uh, went very, very well. I just got done recording that and so pleased with uh, with uh, with both of them. So happy that I was able to get Gad Sad back um, for I, I, once uh, to begin with and then a second time. Um, he is... Uh, around in California for vacation, and so I kind of uh, I kind of lucked out and pulled him away from his family for um, uh, a couple hours on two different occasions, and got to record these. And you guys are going to enjoy them. Um, so make sure and share this with everyone you know who you think might be interested. You know, subscribe, rate, review, do all that good stuff that I'm always preaching about. And uh, just enjoy today's episode. Thank you. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today I'm in Newport Beach interviewing a professor at John Molson's School of Business and Concordia University Research Chair in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption. And the very first thing we're going to go over is how exactly to pronounce your name. Gad Saad, everybody. So it's the first name is between Gad and God, and it's actually spelt G-A-D. Exactly right. And, and it's pronounced... God. God. And how how was that? Pretty good, pretty good. You're good. The first uh, it's the last <laughs> name that intimidates yeah, me. It's S A A D, right? Which is, is is meant to mimic a very difficult guttural sound that few Westerners can mimic. It's the Ayin. So my my name, when properly pronounced, is Saad. Because you're originally from Lebanon. Lebanon, but okay. most people will just con you know extend the A, so it just becomes Saad. Right. Uh, so that's good enough. All right. I, I might have to settle for, <laughs> no worries. for that, to be honest. Um, and and uh, you wrote a uh, fantastic, well, a couple of books, but the one that I just finished reading, right. the one we're going to be talking about today, The Consumer Instinct, which is, uh, this is, okay, this is something that I've been um, hoping, and we, we've hinted at it a few times, um, uh, ju- just the um, uh, the kind of, uh, biological mechanisms of that that drive consumer behavior and and um, we, we you know we've talked a little bit about kind of conspicuous consumption and sure. it, but we've only touched on it just very little bits as as just small parts of something else that we are talking right. about in other episodes and this is a topic that I've been hoping to get into um, for for some time now. And um, you've come to the right guy. <laughs> I have indeed. And your book is uh, exceptionally readable Thank as you. well, and, and and filled with. I mean, I I've 
at this point, like evolutionary psychology and biology, like pop science books, like I, I've read so many of them right. that I'm always surprised to, when I still find so much new information oh, nice. um, and interesting studies. And also, um, I, I just found yours to be so read. There's so many like uh, kind of pop references. Right. You, you use a lot of um, TV shows and, and movies. Exactly. And, and this is this is definitely. Um, and, and, and by the way, listeners, I don't mean to say this and, and then like have you get his book and then be like, I don't understand any of this stuff. And the, <laughs> because if you're completely unfamiliar, some, right. I mean, it's mind blowing stuff. Right. And, and so some of the concepts, um, you know, can take a little while to grasp. But this is definitely um, if you've if you listen to this uh, interview and, and you're interested in this stuff. This is this is an excellent book for that's accessible to anybody. Well, thank you for that um, very nice introduction. So, how did you um, how did you get into studying right. the evolutionary and, and biological mechanisms of consumer behavior? This, this is, I mean, evolutionary psychology is already a pretty new right. field, and then. To apply it to consumption, um, yeah. consumption and marketing and whatnot is really, really new. So first, first semester as a doctoral student, uh, this is going back to fall 1990. I, I, ha- I had enrolled in an advanced social psychology course. Uh, this is at Cornell University. So this was not an evolutionary psychology course. Halfway through the semester, the professor, his name is Dennis Regan, assigned a book called Homicide written by two of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology, Margot Wilson and Martin Daly, husband and wife team, where they looked at patterns of criminality from an evolutionary perspective. So they were able to explain in a very elegant manner that the way that certain recurring patterns of crime happen across eras and across very, very different cultures. So for example, a woman is most likely to be murdered by her long-term male partner either because of uh, suspected or realized infidelity. Right. And the reason being that paternity uncertainty is a very real threat to a man's genetic interests. So when I read that book and saw the elegance and the parsimony of evolutionary psychology, now I, I had enrolled in the doctoral program with the idea of studying consumer psychology. And so the eureka moment happened that first semester, 25 years ago. I thought, well, I will eventually found this field called, which I call evolutionary consumption, where I take all of these principles from evolutionary biology and then apply them to the study of consumer behavior. And this, even till today, this remains quite regrettably a controversial endeavor because most social scientists in general reject the idea that biology and certainly evolution have anything to do with human affairs. So you can, you can use evolutionary theory to study the behavior of the mosquito and the zebra and the wolf, that's perfectly fine. But don't you dare use it to study humans. What We're too smart and complicated for exactly. all that silly instinct stuff. Exactly. So what makes us human, according to most social scientists, is that we transcend our biology. We are cultural animals. And so most of the consumer behavior literature, as wonderful as and uh, rigorous as it might be, was completely void of any evolutionary principles until I came along. And so for the first maybe seven to 10 years of my lone wolf endeavor, I I was pretty much the only guy. In the last six, seven, eight years, 
there's a new generation of really talented folks that have come in at that intersection. So now I could say that there's probably about maybe 10 to 15 very active researchers at the intersection of EP, evolutionary psychology and consumer behavior. But for many, many years, I was it. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and so, so it, you know, we've kind of, we've touched on this a little bit before on, on the podcast, this idea that um, the economists always, always thought that people made these very rational, calculated purchasing decisions that, you know, you would pay X amount of money for X amount of utility uh, and and um, and this is all pretty predictable and and rational and and um, and and so evolutionary psychology says that that the, that this is going to be all over the place. To be, if it's going to be different, if you're um, a child and and if you're a boy male or, or a girl, male or female, what if you're older, you're yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Once you start having kids, if yeah. you're single, exactly. uh, which which I'm a single guy <laughs> now for the first time in some time, and um, and I have to say I have found Wait. myself like spending a lot more on dates and that that having, sort of thing. Having seen the car that you drove down in from Malibu, <laughs> I must say you need to upgrade. Otherwise, it's going to be a tough battle in Southern California. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. You, I, 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 do, I do well on the road. <laughs> see, but the see, good news for you is you're tall, so you're okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I, I like to think I have a symmetrical-ish face. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, I have... Uh, so... So in LA, I can't do very well because I I drive that car right. and currently have roommates and <laughs> and then I but I go on the road. I spend most of my time on the road, and there I'm often in nice hotels and have like a nice rental car right. and all of that kind of thing. So I'm able to advertise myself uh, <laughs> and, and not terribly honestly. Right. <laughs> um, so so let's talk about that a little sure. bit. So du duplicity, right, the, the, the ability to fake signals is found throughout the animal kingdom, right? So you, you might have a, uh, a snake that has certain coloring that is, they're called actually aposematic colorings, meaning that they are warning signals that say, look, the fact that I'm advertising such bright colors suggests that I am dangerous, stay away from me. That's why I could advertise them. Now what happens is another snake that is utterly harmless, that is completely not poisonous, will mimic the exact mm -hmm. same patterns with slight differences. I mean, f an expert might be able to detect it, but most people would not be able to tell which one is which. And so in a sense, it piggybacks on the aposematic coloring of the really dangerous snake. And so these types of uh, fake signals are found throughout the animal kingdom. And so what I do in my work, so I did this in my first book in 2007, uh, I talk about how consumers engage in all sorts of fake signals. So if you think, for example, of Canal Street in New York, I mean, that whole market, that whole street exists nothing than f to try to fake people into thinking that you can afford really expensive brands, right? So there'll be a, a Louis Vuitton uh, uh, bag uh, that you could purchase for $50, but hopefully nobody will know that it's not the actual $5,000 bag. And why do people care? Why, it, whether it's the real Louis Vuitton or, or the fake one, if they look the same right, well, because, and serve the same function? Well, because hopefully you're trying to convince people that I could be sufficiently high status to waste tons of money 
on this otherwise pretty useless accoutrement, right? You have so uh, many resources, you can just afford to burn them to burn in front them. of everybody. Th and th think about, I mean, you were mentioning uh, the, the cultural references that uh, are found in my book, so let's, let's do one now. Think about the rap videos. In nearly every single rap video that you can think of, there is one behavior that's exactly what we're talking about. You have these young rappers throwing mads, wads of money out of the Ferrari, out of the club. Out, right? Why are they engaging in this behavior? Why, why do we consistently see these young rappers throwing money everywhere? Well, because it's basically saying, my God, I must be so wealthy to be able to take wads of $100 bills and just throw them from the balcony at this nightclub. Right. Right? So this is why... It, so So... You're predicting we won't hear 50 Cent rap, rapping about his bankruptcy? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's, there's, there's literally, I, I can't remember the exact count, but at one point I had counted the number of rap songs that have the title Money in the Bank as the title of the song, and I can't remember the exact number, but it's many, many songs. Now, what, what, why is that? Is it because you know, they're not creative enough to come up with another title? No, it's because that, those words are a very powerful, intoxicating signal. Right. Uh, so I mean, because what what did our ancestors have to do if if they couldn't uh, they, they couldn't show a lady their their bank statement? Right. Uh, so <laughs> right. So so different cultures. Th that's actually a really good point because it shows that evolutionary psychology is actually not what they call biological determinism. Mm -hmm. The the evolutionary drive is for men to seek status and then signal status. But now the specific ways by which you go about instantiating that drive will vary depending on your idiosyncratic talents, depending on the culture that you're in, depending on the era you're in. So it might be that the, if you're living in some hunter-gatherer society, how well you hunt might be the equivalent of the Maserati. And so, so nobody is saying that there is a set of genes that we've evolved. Maserati to, to genes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What we've evolved is the desire to uh, seek status, to signal status. Now, how we go about implementing that will, of course, depend on situational variables. Much in the same way we're kind of, um, uh, I, I, mean, I mean, sports are an extension of that with competition and everything. And, exactly. and, and uh, you know, sports vary uh, widely across the world from, you know, soccer being the most popular sport in the world. I, I, and, you know, we're not nearly as popular here. We're more into American football and and, um, you know, they don't have baseball a lot of places. Yeah. And then you go in these hunter-gatherer tribes and uh, there's people doing weird bungee jumping stunts and clonking each other over the head with clubs and, and whatnot. But, and these might look kind of, at first glance, like very, very different behaviors. But obviously it's the same sort of drives. Absolutely right. Uh, there's, a, there's a great study done, I think, in the 70s uh, I think it was Child, Robert Cialdini. I can't remember. I hope I'm not getting the reference wrong. Where it, the, the term is called basking in reflected glory, where he looked at, this was with several colleagues, where they looked at what happens to the, uh, at, at, at a university campus to the students after the, I think it was the football or basketball team, if they had won the day before or lost. And, and the dependent measure was would people wear Let's say it's Indiana University. So would people walk around campus wearing Indiana University sweatshirts as a function of whether they had won or lost the day before? And what they found is that following a win, people would be much more likely to signal their belongingness 
uh, to the winning club. Right. So that itself is an evolutionary drive, right? I, I want, I wish to uh, uh, be part of the coalition of winners and I wish to distance myself from the losers. This is why when you even hear sports fans speaking about their teams, right? We won. Right, right, right. right. When, when it's about losing, it's never we lost. They, they lost. You know, the, the, the Montreal Canadiens lost. Yeah, But yeah. when Montreal Canadiens win, we won. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And yeah, so, yeah, we just talked about the, this oh, very recently. Yeah, yeah. It, it's such a funny phenomenon. And, and, and um, I, also that people will pick, like, particular players to blame it on, I've noticed, too. <laughs> so that, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to hate the whole team. Right, you know, it's true. the coach, the true. dumb coach exactly. or the quarterback or, right. you know, whatever that blew the whole thing. Um, so back to this idea of, um, of, you know, what we've evolved to find attractive and to consume and everything. And, and because I, so uh, I'm, like, what does my car say about me exactly? You know, it's got all sorts of dents in it and everything else. And it's, you know, it's cheap. But, but here's the thing. Uh, from an economist point of view, right. like a classical economist yeah, point of view, yes. this is, I, I mean, I bought that car. Um, and, and when I bought it, it was um, uh, uh, Consumer, um, oh, what's the name of the... Uh, Consumer reports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Consumer reports. It was rated the the top most like uh, efficient and safe and whatever. That's called cognitive dissonance reduction. What yeah, yeah, right yeah. Now. Like <laughs> most practical car right, right. in in the uh, uh, of that year or whatever. Right. And so I got the most practical car of that year. You know, and then having having a. A roommate situation. And by the way, I'm I'm well aware that none of this is attractive to ladies, but that's the very point. Uh, having having a roommate situation when I'm spending three out of four weeks on the road and I essentially just need a storage unit, right. it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to have um, a nice apartment in right. Malibu or or wherever. Like I used to live with my uh, with my ex, but. Um, but this isn't something, this is like a hard thing to signal to ladies, you know, look how practical I've got, I am. I've got good news for you. Yeah? I, there is an evolutionary way I can get you out of your low status conundrum. Card. <laughs> now it turns out that the upper uppers, so the highest echelon of the social strata drive quite, uh, modest cars. Hmm. Uh, so in other words, if you look at oftentimes, you know, the super, super rich, they're not driving Maseratis and uh, Lamborghinis. Now, the, one might say, well, wh why would that be? They certainly could afford it. It's the nouveau riche, the, the stratum below that actually are much more concerned with those types of cars. So why would the upper uppers not be so concerned with driving such fancy cars? Now, the argument is that it, within the social network that they operate in, everybody's a billionaire. Therefore, driving a Maserati is not really an honest signal of my status because everybody within my social circle could exactly meet that signal. If I truly want to be impressive as a billionaire, maybe I donate $150 million to the Guggenheim Museum, mm. right? Uh, driving a Maserati is really a useless signal. Therefore, they drive very modest cars. So perhaps, Shane, you are driving a really low status car because you're an upper, upper <laughs> <member>. <laughs> see, I just explained yeah, yeah, yeah. you're really 
May I say shitty car? Uh, <laughs> Through more uh, a bigger web of lies. There you go. <laughs> so as long as you could convince people that you're part of the upper upper, that's I'm why you're great talking, at lying. Then you're, you're done. Yeah, you're yeah. Good. I mean, I'm able to get a bunch of scientists <laughs> to talk to me on a uh, on a podcast. You know, I'm I'm an excellent liar. Um, I so uh, yeah, I mean, it it is funny to me. There's things that are kind of. Uh, one that uh, along the this is popping into my head there's a restaurant moon shadows in malibu which yeah. i absolutely love you should uh, you should take moon your shadows? family sometime okay. yeah we'll it, it doesn't look like much from the front but it's got the most amazing view and there's like beds out everywhere and it's loungy and it's pretty fancy but sometimes when i'm in malibu and i'll go to like a really fancy restaurant like that um i'll always think like the the guy who's like dressed the worst I'm always like, I bet that guy That's is the, the richest guy. person in here. <laughs> There's actually a study that was done uh, maybe a year or two ago. Uh, I think it was published in Journal of Consumer Research where they looked at uh, the manner uh, in which academics were dressed at a conference as a function of their status as academics. And it was inversely correlated. So the higher status that the academic had, uh, the less formally he or she uh, was dressed mm. because you didn't you don't have to uh you know signal that you're wearing Hugo Boss suit if everybody knows you and everybody knows you're top dog so yeah that, that's an exactly correct mechanism yeah yeah you don't have to impress anybody anymore that's why I'm in flip-flops today yeah that's why I'm driving <laughs> that crappy car I'm awesome people know it <laughs> there you go um it, and it is funny all of the kind of I mean, often some of the psychology seems a bit outdated. Like, for example, I can eat whatever the hell I want, as much as I want, all of the time. This is, this is a very nice thing in our modern world, right? right? Where, where I can eat anything. And if you have a child with me, probably your kid, my whole family is the exact same way. Probably uh, whatever child we have together is going to also have this metabolism and never have to worry about obesity or anything right. like that. So if evolution like kept up with what, you know, the modern problems and everything right. like that, that should be something attractive, but instead it's, and, and there's, it's not that there's not women that don't like skinny guys, but I am, I would be considered toward the lanky side toward, right. toward, you know, most women would prefer that I have more bulk and, and more right. muscle on me. And, and there's a lot of evolutionary reasons for, because, you know, in a hunter gatherer society, yeah. this would have been far more important. So there are three body types, uh, uh, mesomorphic, endomorphic, and ectomorphic. And it turns out that sort of the, the athletic type that women desire is the meso mesomorphic type, which also turns out to be, by the way, the body type of criminals, like hardcore, like the guys that are at St. Quentin, most of them are unlikely to have your lanky build. Right, right. Uh, many of them actually will have my build, sort of the, the stocky, mm -hmm. uh, I'll say muscular, Notwithstanding the fact that my waist might suggest otherwise. Uh, Speaking so, of honest signaling. <laughs> that's right. See, I, I could carry all that fat because, hey, I'm, I'm top. It doesn't matter. But, yeah, so, so certainly body types. is. But as you may know this probably already, uh, in terms of waist-to-hip ratio, what women look for is 0.9. 
Uh, oh, I actually didn't know yeah. that. I, I mean, I, I'm familiar with, with the, the other one, the, with fe- the yeah. female. Yeah. So if women, for your for your viewers who may not know this, uh, male preferences in women is the classic hourglass figure, which is around 0.7, and then women's preferences in men is about 0.9. Yeah. So the waist is 70 percent uh, the the, uh, the circumference exactly up to yeah. the hips, um, and and so sp- along those same lines, um, when it comes to uh, consuming food, why why is it that we can't figure out to stop eating this stuff that we know is killing us? And this, and it, it, is it just that these uh, corporations are evil and like uh, they've they've duped us through marketing into liking um, uh, burgers or no? So I, actually, you kind of alluded to it in one of your earlier questions. There's something called the mismatch hypothesis, which basically states, simply put, that many of the current environmental realities are incongruent with some of the evolutionary pressures that led to certain adaptations that we still carry as vestiges. So, for example, you and I have gustatory preferences that were solutions to an adaptive problem that our ancestors faced, which is caloric uncertainty and caloric scarcity. That's why both you and I are likely to salivate more if we think of a juicy burger or juicy steak or or chocolate mousse, things that are, you know, high-fat delivery. Now, the problem, and hence the mismatch, is that today we are in an environment of plenty. There is no caloric caloric uncertainty. There is no caloric scarcity. but, But my taste buds have not suddenly adjusted to the new reality. And therefore, this mismatch results in what we typically refer to in evolutionary medicine. If you look at the top, I think, eight or nine killers around the world, they're all due to this mismatch hypothesis. So colon cancer, diabetes, heart disease, Mm -hmm. uh, all of these in one form or another can be linked to this idea of a mismatch between our evolutionary environment and the current reality. Right, and you have all these fat cells for storing up all all exactly. of this stuff for a rainy day. But if you could, if you could just tell your body, I have a refrigerator. Exactly. <laughs> Nothing. To, you don't have to worry about exactly. me going five days without exactly. eating. That's just not going to happen. Exactly. I'll take my chances. And this, by the way, to, to give you a, another similar example to this, people say, "Well, why do you talk about this this idea of paternity uncertainty?" in today's environment where you have DNA paternity testing? (laughs) Well, because the mechanisms, the emotional and behavioral mechanisms don't suddenly adjust because now we have DNA paternity testing. So when you walk around acting sexually territorial over your woman and you're not happy if she's slow dancing with another guy, you don't say, oh, but I don't have to worry about it because today we have DNA paternity testing. My response is a vestige of a long evolutionary, you know, history. Right, uh, but often people make that mistake. They think that once you have a current reality, that that mechanism will just shut off. It doesn't. Our biology just doesn't evolve fast enough. Exactly right. Um, and uh, um, uh, speaking of that, what do you think about the the stuff that that like people people will say the baby looks like the father more often than not? To oh, like I got of, a, I got a great story for you. Kind of reassure. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, so for your listeners who don't know about this finding, so when a baby comes out of the womb, usually they, people will say he looks like the father, and especially the mother's side of the family 
are the ones likely to say that because it's a mechanism to assuage the fears that the the father was cuckolded. Yeah, this whole paternity thing is, uh, you know, the the quote is mother's baby, father's maybe. And we've all seen Maury Povich. (laughs) Exactly right. Right. But now now I have a story, a personal story, which I've shared in several contexts. I'll share it again here. Uh, So when my wife was pregnant with our first daughter, whom you met earlier today, uh, you know, when when, when parents become new, uh, they're expecting a child, you get that first ultrasound photo, and you typically put it proudly on your fridge because you're all excited that you're about to have a baby. And so we had done exactly that. We put the photos of our uh, daughter in utero on the fridge. My mother-in-law comes over and is looking, oh, is that is that the baby? She looks at it. She stops. She goes, oh, my God, God, the baby looks exactly like you. <laughs> she was saying this about an in utero image that, frankly, you couldn't tell if it was an extraterrestrial, yeah, right? If it was a... It's a black and white blob. It's, it's a black and white blob, yeah. but she could absolutely <laughs> see the morphology of God in that image. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, she just pulled a paternity uncertainty. She said, no, 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 don't give me your BS science stuff. I'm telling you, look at it. She looks exactly like you. The baby looks like you. And that's a great time to remind people these are non-conscious processes <laughs> exactly, driving exactly this. Right. We, don't, we don't realize that what's driving us that's to exactly have right. those things shooting Listen, out of our mouths uh, sometimes. Uh, breathing is an adaptation, yet you don't exactly understand the mechanism of how you go about breathing. Right. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I have three different directions I want to go. Let's go this one first. I, I have, uh, speaking of, um, of fast food and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned a correlation between um, being hungry oh, yeah. and risk-taking. Uh, I thought you were going to say being hungry and going grocery shopping. Oh. I thought that's the one you were going to mention. Um, okay, yeah. that too. Yeah, so that one basically... So the idea basically is that once you're hungry, uh, a food hoarding mechanism kicks in. I mean, think of an extreme example, let's say the the hummingbird. The hummingbird, because of its very, very fast metabolic rate, has to eat something like 1.5 to 3 times its body weight per day, lest it will starve to death. Well, humans don't have quite the metabolic rate of a hummingbird, but when they're hungry, they want to hoard calories. And so if you go grocery shopping when you're hungry, uh, you're likely to over-purchase if only because of this, as you said, non-conscious uh, hoarding mechanism. Hmm. Now, I'm not. I'm trying to think back about your... It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, let, let's go back to being single and risk-taking versus, say, being in like a committed relationship. Uh, it, has that been, um, been studied a lot? Like, like, because you'd think over time... It, I mean, it makes sense, a single guy takes all these risks and we can talk about that right. more. I, I mean, I was actually single, um, for, for the first time and who knows how many years when I, uh, went hiking and jumped off of something that was way too high and broke both of my feet around to watch you do this. No, there wasn't Bad actually, move. but I, I, I know <laughs> complete waste of effort. <laughs> I know. Uh, I was practicing for when <laughs> women were around. Uh, yeah. well, listen, I, I, t- I, I talk about some of these issues in, in The Consuming Instinct and some of my other books. There's a ritual. I th- you referred to it earlier. It's called the end goal ritual. This happens. Are you familiar with this? this yeah. Uh, right. So basically you tie 
uh, as a rite of passage for manhood to manhood yeah uh, young males who are single who wish to be accepted into sort of the tribe of men warriors uh, you tie vine ropes to their ankles they go up to a platform maybe 80 to 100 feet high and you have to calculate the length of the rope so that as they dive head first they will stop just short of having their heads splatter on the floor. <laughs> and you also have to make sure that the vine ropes, depending on how much moisture there was, how much elasticity that vine... So it is a truly honest signal of bravery. Yeah. Now, why do people... Because this isn't NASA putting together these calculations <laughs> for these people either. Exactly. This, this is an imperfect science That's they're working with. Science. So, so if you're willing to jump off and risk... Uh, you know, a very, very ugly death, uh, then boy, that's an honest signal. If, if all it took is for us to do 10 jumping jacks, then everybody would be a warrior. And so mm. now let's, let's extend this to say some potentially marketing context. Uh, when you develop a public service announcement telling young males, hey, please don't drive uh, recklessly or, or else you might uh, die, that actually doesn't work very well because the whole reason that young males engage in reckless driving is precisely because it uh, serves as an honest signal. Yeah. Look, I could drive like a madman and come out unscathed on the other side. Believe me, that was my whole, as soon as I got my license, that was there like me and my friends and car chases and flying around on old country roads and doing donuts. I was from Wisconsin and, and we'd do all these donuts and and stuff on the ice, and I can't tell you how many times I should have died over <laughs> and over again. But it, you know, it did. It did get me like. I mean, it often got me the wrong kinds of attention too. But right. it did get me like lots of attention, of you know. And it got me. Uh, it did get me some kind of silly amount of respect right. from a lot of my friends like I was always the crazy guy right. who, who would do anything and it is funny to look back at like I mean, I mean that was one of my huge insecurities back then was women and right. how to get attention from them sure. and, and everything else which you know when you're that age I, I think that's that's a lot of guys of around that age um, or, or or the or the um, the high school I I thought that was interesting. You talking about kind of this uh, uh, this kind of cliche that we're all familiar with the the guy in high school that uh, you know the the the, the quarterback or whatever right. that does really well with the ladies, and then Ten later years on later, in he's time. washing your car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, but speaking of, if uh, he's washing my car, he's not feeling too bad about himself. <laughs> <laughs> washing a car, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Did you, Did you see the car that we have out there? Uh, which I, one was it? Well, well, I'll just be... No, it's one of those uh, souped-up uh, chargers. Oh, was that yours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're already you get married. You got yeah, kids. You right, did it. Right. You're still, you true. still got to show it's, off. It's still there. The testosterone is still looking to express itself. I would love to talk about um, that a little bit, the, sure. the hormonal differences sure. Sure, and, and how those can um, shift our uh, not only our, our hormonal hormonal changes and and um i i guess you, you know whatever sets that whether you're high or low in testosterone right. or whatever change your consuming behavior sure. but also having these temporary effects sure. like losing a game or something like that where sure. your testosterone gets lowered yeah so i can tell you a couple 
several studies that I've done using testosterone, uh, some with men, some with women. So sticking with the car uh, example, a few years ago I did a study with one of my former graduate students where we brought young males and had them drive uh, a Porsche and a beaten up uh, old sedan in two environments, downtown Montreal where everybody can see you or on a semi-deserted highway. And each male who participated did all four conditions. Mm -hmm. After each condition, we would uh, collect salivary assays, so saliva basically, to then measure their fluctuations in testosterone. And as you might expect, when we, now people, now think of most psychology studies where, you know, it's basically a hypothetical scenario. Imagine yourself driving a Porsche. In our case, we actually had the males driving the Porsche. So right. this was a real field experiment. Uh, I always joke with people that uh, uh, try to get a granting agency to release research funds to you because, you know, you're going to be renting a Porsche for scientific purposes. <laughs> and really, you know, it wouldn't, be, wouldn't it just be more practical just to buy me the Porsche <laughs> exactly. so we don't have to rent it all the time Plus, for I these studies I have to drive it for over. about two weeks just yeah. to make sure that it, it works well. It's exactly. all part of the science. Of course. So, but anyways... Um, so as you might expect, uh, you know, you put young males in a Porsche, their their testosterone levels shoot through the roof. Whether someone's watching or not. Uh, well, that's what surprised us. We actually had predicted that the rise in testosterone would be much greater mm. in the public setting, meaning downtown Montreal, than in the semi-deserted highway. To our surprise, it didn't matter. In both conditions, testosterone blew up. I wonder if you were a Porsche owner if there would be a difference. So you're used to driving this thing. So you've habituated. Yeah, you've habituated a little bit. And then when you're by yourself, there's nothing. But then when you're in town, it's like, hey, I, you right. remind yourself why you have this car. Hypothesis. Well, in this case, though, our, our, our demographic were largely university undergraduate students. Right, right. So we couldn't test that. But yeah, that's, that's an interesting hypothesis. I'm just trying to get you a Porsche <laughs> is all. This, <laughs> this is, play enough. along I, with that, me that, a little I bit. I got you. Uh, so uh, it's another study that I did, uh, in, in this case uh, with women, uh, so with another graduate student, we kept track of women's uh, behaviors across 35 contiguous days. Why 35? Because we wanted to measure what happens to their purchasing behaviors as a function of where they are in their menstrual cycles. Mm -hmm. And the, we t the very first episode, we had Marty, Marty Hazelton on talking about the social effects of, um, exactly. of ovulation, but she didn't, we didn't get into any consumer Cons stuff. Yeah, so, let's so. Do that. Uh, so, so, so the reason why we chose 35 days is because the, the average length of a cycle is of 28 days. So by going one week extra, you're likely to pick up most of the natural variants across women. Mm. And so two things that we looked for in this particular paper, although we actually collected much more data, we looked at uh, beautification patterns and food-related behaviors. But let's talk for now about the, be the beautification because that's kind of the mating-related stuff. And so we wanted to see whether women would be more likely to engage in consumption-related behaviors that were related to sexual signaling, uh, wear makeup, wear high heels, uh, you know, dress in a more scantily clad manner. And perhaps not surprising, when they were in the maximally fertile phase of their menstrual cycles, this is when they engage in the greatest amount of sexual signaling. And of course, it's not as though, as you earlier said, that they do this consciously, right? I mean, they don't sit there and, f and, 
and, and chart their progesterone and estradiol levels and their luteinizing hormones, say, oh, gee, I better dress in a short miniskirt. Rather, it's an evolved mechanism. They feel less bloated. They feel uh, more desirable. They feel maybe a bit more libidinous. And, and therefore, they express themselves in a perhaps more uh, beautified manner. Uh, you don't have to be conscious of the mechanism. Right. Uh, a completely different study, uh, also with testosterone. I did another study with uh, a bunch of my graduate students where we looked at, uh, are you familiar with the digit ratio? Um, yeah, but I wanted to ask you about, about that. that. We okay. haven't talked about it at all, I don't think, on this podcast. Oh, good. Okay. So the digit ratio, the, the classic, what's called 2D, 4D digit ratio is the, the ratio of the length of your, yeah, you better check yours to see if you're a woman or a man uh, there, Shane. Uh, uh, what uh, am I? I'm, it's I'm pretty seeing, even. Uh, I Does that think, mean I'm gay? I Well, at least I'm going to address you as Mrs. Shane. Uh, (laughs) I'm pretty feminized. You're you're pretty much a girl. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, oh, I'm all male, baby. Oh, wow. I mean, I I very much, I'm I'm not like a big, like, manly man. I'm I'm an adrenaline junkie, but that's like the only, like, manly Ah, uh, thing about me. I've I've never been into... uh, sports or any of that stuff gotcha. yeah uh so so this this the the index finger uh the ratio to the ring finger in women it's roughly same length in men the ring finger is longer than the index finger what would happen if you took steroids or something right so so the so the idea before we answer that so okay. so why do we care about this why is this related to our hormone segment now well, it turns out that the amount of testosterone that you've been exposed to in utero drives this particular thing. So on average, males, young, young males, will have more masculinized digit ratios than females. And that, and that has been shown not only in the human species, in many other species, where they could actually experimentally, so that kind of relates to your uh, steroid question, where you could experimentally, let's say you take an egg uh, of a bird and you inject it with testosterone and then you actually see the causal effect on the the digit ratio. So Mm. that's been shown across many different species. So the idea, so what we wanted to do was to measure men and women's digit ratios and hopefully that's a proxy measure of how testosteroneized you are. And then we administered to them a risk-taking scale. Uh, and of course, our hypothesis was that it's mainly for men, the more masculinized their digit ratios were, the higher they would score on these risk-taking measures. Mm. And that's exactly what we found. So this was a very novel way to link a morphological feature, right, your fingers, to a behavioral proclivity, how much risk-taking penchant I have. Hmm. Uh, So all things considered, if we just look at my fingers and yours, technically I should be bungee jumping and you should be knitting. So this is is just a a good time to point out that there are all sorts of individual differences (laughs) and all of these these studies are are great at making um, predictions uh, broadly about the population. And then sometimes you have a guy with 
lady digit ratios who is way Uber into man. rock climbing and and True. driving cars way too fast and jumping off cliffs and breaking his feet and I I like gambling and doing drugs. I'm a very reckless, uh, <laughs> um, impulsive uh, person, right. um, and. Not terribly proud of that either, <laughs> by the way. That, that was starting to sound a little bit now, like Now, by the right. way, the, some of those traits that you just mentioned will either be attractive or not, depending on whether a woman is looking for a cat or that, as you probably right. know. So some of this reckless stuff will be particularly attractive to a woman who's looking for a short-term dalliance, in which case, you know, if you're signaling cat properties, hey, Shane is interesting. But on the other hand, if the woman is looking for uh, you know, a long-term mate, then those exact same traits might become quite undesirable, which again shows you sort of the complexity of, 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 of humans, right? You can't really state that there is one set of mating preferences that hold true across all possible situations. It mm. really does depend. So, so there's like, uh, uh, I, I, like yesterday I went to the Malibu Creek State Park and there's like cliff diving and, wow. and stuff like that, um, which I was going to, but I was like, I'd feel pretty stupid still recovering from breaking my feet <laughs> if I got another injury doing jumping off something right, right. that's too high. Um, but I wanted to, but, but I, I do like the idea of all these guys jumping off of this cliff or whatever. And then there's, there's the one guy sitting out and, and the lady looking for a long-term mate and like, Ooh, look how, <laughs> look how responsible he is. He, he's reading some poetry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <Keats. laughs> right, right, right. Um, uh, so that's, uh, and, and what are, what are some of the kind of environmental factors that can change hormone Right, great, great question. So, so for example, and I face this because I have two young children, mm -hmm. uh, when a man is about to have a child and shortly after having a child, I mean with his wife obviously, his testosterone takes a big hit. Mm. Now the, the, the evolutionary argument here is very simple, right? To the extent that you don't want men to be sitting all day thinking about mating and you'd like them to you know, canalize some of their uh, efforts to parenting, mm. well, a great way to do that is for nature to build in a mechanism to reduce your libido. Well, how do we reduce the libido? You take a hit of lowering testosterone, and that naturally makes it that you're more likely to be conducive to be a, a better parent. And so that would be a great example of how a situational variable, but it's not permanent, of course, right? Uh, later, you want mating effort to come back into the... Right, we had we had Doug Kenrick on not, yeah, not too guy. long ago, kind of Love talking him. about the different subselves and, exactly. and stages in life. Like, you know, the mate acquisition self subself, and then the exactly. mate retention subself, exactly. and then the child rearing subself. And, exactly right. You know, social and status seeking, and um, so I have. Can I? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I have a study along those lines of sort of how babies affect testosterone levels. So I did a study which is not yet published with the same former doctoral student with whom I did the menstrual cycle stuff, where we looked at what happens to men's risk-taking and conspicuous consumption and charitable donations, these, if you like, tap into different mechanisms, as a function of exposing them to baby stimuli. So we did two, we did two things, basically. We had men exposed visually to baby stimuli. 
so the, the prediction here would be that once you expose men to baby stimuli, for example, their risk-taking proclivity would go down. Okay? Uh, but we also did another manipulation. So it wasn't just visual. We actually also had an auditory manipulation where we had men listen to baby crying and baby laughter. Now, these are two va different valence emotions, right? One is it's approach behavior, right? You want to approach a smiling baby, a laughing baby. You want to avoid the screaming baby. Uh, not to disappoint your, your, your viewers, the data was quite convoluted, and so we don't yet know, quite know what to do with this study mm. because it wasn't a clear pattern. We, we, we obtained some really interesting findings. Some of it was counterintuitive, and, and very little of it could be explained with one sort of parsimonious explanation. But anyways, mm. that was a good example of taking an ecologically relevant variable, like babies, and demonstrating how it alters men's behaviors. Right. I mean, you do hear, I, I've had a lot of male friends that have kids, and they'll say it's, it's like a, I had this part of my brain all of a sudden. Shut like, off. Uh, well, either shut off or like a, a new part well, kind of uh, yeah, right. uh, opened up that I didn't, there was right. like this part of me that I didn't realize that I had before. Well, but I really, it's just they, they turned into a big pussy. Is what you're <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you personally, you know, I used to, you know, I travel a lot. I used to never think much about the threats of uh, the plane crashing. And I could literally time it exactly with when we were going to have our first child. Suddenly when I would That's fly, interesting. I was terrified. Well, what if the plane goes down? I'll never meet my daughter. What if I die now? What I never thought about that before. But exactly when I had kids, suddenly the looming plane crash was really likely. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've kind of felt that way um, recently because and back to the back to this because uh, it's relevant here. Back to this finger digit ratio sure. thing. Like, it, so is this something that can change once you're once you're already an adult? Do you know? Uh, you mean that you could, for example, have had highly masculinized digit ratios when you were five, but then later? Yeah, yeah like, like say, is Caitlyn Jenner? Uh, 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 are her digits going to change? Uh, now, no. Ratio? No, no, it's no. too late. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. It's, 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 there, are, there are two types of, if you like, testosterone effects. There's something called activational or organizational. Right. Organizational means that at a particular developmental stage, the testosterone effects kick in. So they've kicked in already. Right, right, right. right? right. Now, she could, she, he, whatever. Yeah, okay? yeah. She could take certain hormones now that alter certain features, right? Her voice could become higher. Right. Uh, her shape could change. Her fat deposit could change. Uh, digit ratio, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. It would be strange yeah. if that were the case. So I can explain. I can tell ladies, like, no, I used to be very effeminate, <laughs> and now I'm a man. Um, I, I actually, I do feel um, like, because uh, I, I hurt myself last year, and it was just like, I, I took a lot of hits. Like I was, I was definitely losing in the game of life for right. uh, for a few months. But now you're and sitting with me, so you're a winner. Yeah, exactly. But but I've definitely felt like changes within myself, like getting back on the horse right. and like getting back into dating right. and everything else. And, and like at first, like not knowing what to do and not having confidence. Sure. And now I feel kind of like pretty back to normal and everything. And, and it is so strange to think of all of these different hormones right. driving and, and regulating. And so, so much of, of, uh, it's what, what do you think about if, if you consciously knew, um, 
like what you wanted out of life. Like, uh, I'm thinking about women way too much right now and I can't focus on work. <laughs> like in the future, kind of changing your hormone levels a little oh bit boy. so that you can... Uh, well, do you remember the... There was probably a, some dangerous yeah, territory. Yeah, probably. Uh, do you remember the episode on Seinfeld where George Costanza decides that he's no longer going to think about sex and pursue <laughs> yeah, mating? Yeah. And by, by no longer... Because 99% of his brain was somehow dedicated to the pursuit yeah, yeah. of mating... So now he could learn Portuguese and he becomes a chemist. <laughs> and it, it frees up all possibilities. So maybe men would be even more accomplished if we didn't spend most of our day thinking about the ladies. Well, I was actually <laughs> able to, like, I, when I, I told myself that I was going to take X period of time off, when I got out of my last relationship, I'd just been, like, three failed long-term relationships in a row, and I was like, no, I was like, I'm going to focus on my career right. and get my life straightened out and do the things that I want for a while. Sure. I'm not going to think about women for uh, a period of time. Right. Um, and um, I did feel very, very, very productive. Oh, I, thought, I thought it was like the most, it was a year actually was the time and it was the most productive year of my life. And I feel like since I started dating again, my productivity has taken Taking a dive. an enormous <laughs> enormous hit but um you know that's uh, these are the fluctuations trade-offs of and, life yeah exactly right. um so so here's a couple things that i want to talk about that i think can lead into um a final message with wrapping up so we're kind of driven to especially men i mean women, women are also driven to like spend too much money on sure. clothing and, and this sort of stuff. So, so our instincts do kind of seem to drive this, um, this runaway consumption sure. that we're all kind of aware that we're all doing. We all right. kind of, um, you know, sure, when you're younger, you might watch MTV's Cribs or Pimp My Ride or something like that and, and you know, be like, oh, that would be so neat to have something like that. Because you get older and you realize that that those guys, what they're not showing is like, this is where the sadness happens. Here, here's my 32 guest rooms that I can't invite anyone over to right. because I can't trust anyone because right. they'll all take my money. You know, they don't talk about that, right. that kind of, of stuff on MTV. So you kind of... Uh, wise up a little bit, but but still, you know, there's still like midlife crises, and and here you are, you're a, a, a responsible academic and and uh, chair at a major university, and and you have a wife and kids, and you still gotta rent the charger, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So why did you have to use the word rent? Why couldn't you say I own it? Why well, are you denigrating me like this? Because <laughs> because why would you buy something like that when you got a Porsche coming your there way you very go. soon? There you go. So 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 what do you think? Like, it, it, do you do you think it's? I I mean, obviously. You know, people are becoming a little more aware of this inconvenient truth, right. and and um, it, so maybe I mean, I, even even just mating in general, possibly overpopulation right. and everything else. And I I feel like we are starting to consciously realize, right. hey, we can't be burning through all these right. resources like crazy. 
but we're still driven to do it. And if you're a guy and you're like, hey, I'm going to get a really practical car. This will last me for a long time and I'll have it paid off and now I don't have to worry about it. And the, but now you're single and it's like, well, I know damn well if I, if I look at myself through a woman's eyes, right. I know that this isn't an attractive thing. So how do we get out of this loop? It's, it, it, it's like the obesity thing, exactly. you know, but with consumption. Well, it's very tough. Uh, look, uh, I, I'm as, as well informed about the dangers of overeating as anyone could be. And yet, if you look at my waist, it doesn't look like it's the ideal waist. So right. the fact that we have this knowledge doesn't mean that the Darwinian traps are not as dangerous as always. Now, all other things considered, you'd like to think that having that knowledge is better than not having it, right? Uh, not being blind to this information hopefully will lead us to make better decisions. But clearly, that's not always the case. I mean, I remember I went to see a physician once. I had bronchitis. And I walk into the physician's office. I'm seeing a, I don't, I think he was a pulmonologist. And he was chain smoking in the office. And he's there, <laughs> right? Now, does this physician know that smoking is bad? Does he know that having a patient there who's there for bronchitis is bad? Yet he still <laughs> couldn't extricate himself from his nicotine addiction. So my feeling is that I don't think that the fact that people will read my books uh, they suddenly will become, you know, superior consumers and make all the right decisions. There are certain Darwinian pulls that we succumb to. Some are good, some are bad. That's just our human nature. I remember I was I was going to interview Dan um, Ariely, yeah, and sure. I was I was listening to um, his audio book. I think I think the uh, it was the. Um, honest truth about dishonesty yes. and there was a part um about how uh you, you know ego loss when you test people and there's cognitive fatigue then people make worse choices and end up you know you're passing a tray of food with fruit and cookies on it people are going to take the cookies if they just got off of like a hard test or whatever and i'm sitting there you know, concentrating on the road and, and listening to this book and i literally like just finished that part and like I went into a gas station, and like it, I, I'll sometimes get Drop a little candy acid. in a gas station. <laughs> I, I um, that would have been an awesome story as well, way cooler than the story I'm about to tell, which involves me just eating a, bu a bunch of candy. Oh, but okay. I just started like grabbing all these candy bars, and, and I'm sitting there. I'm like, Shane, what are you doing? You just got done listening. You were listening to this 30 <laughs> it, it seconds ago. You. And, and I, I like walked away with the biggest bag of candy I've ever well, bought in my life. This shows you, by the way. So let me, it's a very good segue to, to the following point. Uh, so if you tell, for example, women, please don't suntan because you might develop melanoma in 35 years. Mm. Uh, that public service announcement comes from the premise that the reason why people do bad things is because they don't know any better. Right. Teach them, and then that will, they will ameliorate their behaviors. And, of course, that's not what people do, right? Women are very aware of the negative consequences of the sun, and yet they do it a lot more than men. Now, what I argue is if you want to get women to stop suntanning, show them the aesthetic ravages to their skin, 
uh, if they suntan for too long. So in other words, uh, don't tell them that they might develop melanoma in 35 years. Tell them that when they are 30, they will have the skin quality of a woman who's 48 mm -hmm. and show that visual image. So that, in a sense, is appealing to an evolutionary pull uh, that is much more relevant. Let's take another example. Uh, smoking, if you, want, if you wish to get young males to stop smoking, telling them that they might develop heart disease when they're 73 is a lot less uh, persuasive than telling them that the number one predictor of impotence in young males is if they are heavy smokers. Now, that will get their attention. If they can't perform tonight with their beautiful girlfriend, that's a lot more relevant than me getting right. heart disease at 73. And so there are real, if you like, evolutionary implications to understanding human nature. Uh, and, and I just gave you two, two hopefully good examples of that. Right. And I mean, I think, I think you know, if one way to stop, um, I, I mean, evolution hasn't, stopped and we can still um be changed and, and, and say say you're worried about global warming and whatnot is ladies all you gotta do is in, instead of going for the guy that's driving the suv and everything how about like the banged up 08 hyundai elantra <laughs> you know that's all i'm saying <laughs> give me a chance ladies <laughs> you'll have skinny kids um uh, I, on, a, on a more serious note what, what about this instead so I have this, I don't, I have no idea what I'm doing with it. I didn't really know what I was doing when I started this podcast anyway, but I had had a podcast before, yeah. um, with, with my, um, with my ex and, um, and it was a really enjoyable podcast and about one of my least favorite things is, um, it was, it was through a network and they, they were very good to us, but we had to, to pay for it. We had to sell ads and pitch all this crap and right. I, I couldn't stand it. And, and this, this project is like my baby. Like I really care about this stuff and it's very meaningful to me. And so I decided that I'd do all of this on my own and instead just l allow my guests each week to plug, you know, whatever charity they feel like. Oh, you, don't, you don't have to pay. You don't have, there, you don't have to donate to get the episode. Just like a gentle prod, like, you know, very nice. yeah, you're, Here's an idea. You can maybe go and do this. And, and I do think that there's, there can be ways in the future to be like, uh, like you said about the extremely wealthy people right. donating to show off, which I have a very wealthy relative who hmm. like uh, goes and, and buys, uh, you know, to get his kids through school and everything, uh, you know, buys a gymnasium for the school nice. or, you, you know, that, that sort of thing. But that, that's like the next kind of level of advertising, but we could do this on a, on a small level. I mean, uh, I, the thing is, I'm not even that charitable. I wish I was more of a charitable person. I'm not, I want to be, that's why I'm, I'm doing this. You need to see pictures of babies. That'll make you more. Charitable. Ah, there, we there go. you go. Uh, but but you know that that's the idea is is just um it, you know i i think there are people that um you know there's there's environmentalists and and there's uh, you know political groups and things like that that you can go and be a part of to meet potential mates there wow. there's other ways of of appealing to um the opposite sex and and to kind of channel your your instincts in 
in ways that are maybe not so wasteful right. and maybe helping out the community and possibly even more attractive right, sure. for people. Um, so, so if you have any thoughts on that, go ahead. But, uh, but also, um, if you could mention your... Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll, so uh, since we're in Orange County and I'm a huge animal lover, uh, it would be nice if people were to help out the Orange County Animal Care Group. Uh, I think one of the most despicable things that humans can do is to treat their animal cousins poorly. And so if you could help there, that would be great. Uh, but to speak about the evolutionary link, uh, it turns out that there's a study that was done showing that a guy walking around with a dog is more likely to get the phone number of girls. And so if you wish to be successful in the mating market, walk around with a dog, gentlemen. It will make you look more paternal. <laughs> Here, I'm dog-sitting my, my ex's oh, nice. dog right now. Oh, it's a horrible picture. He's got dirt all over his face from burying a bone. Oh, that's very that's cool. little Don Nichols. <laughs> very nice. He's about six pounds. Can I and mention uh, some of my social portal stuff? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, um, if, please go uh, because you have your own YouTube. channel. Yeah, so I started right? a YouTube channel uh, almost a year ago. Uh, so it'll be YouTube.com/slash/c for channel/slash/gatsad. Uh, each clip is called the Sad Truth. I've got fifty-one so far, so go check that out. You could follow me on Twitter at at Gadsad G A D S A A D, and I also have a public Facebook page which people can easily find. So hopefully we could connect there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Oh, for thank you so much for coming down from Malibu. It was great uh, meeting you. We should do it again sometime. Anytime. All right. Cheers. Great. Bye. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Part two coming out next week. I hope you enjoyed that one. I imagine that you did. I thought it was a great one. And next week, even better. We, it was our second time meeting, so we're just that much more comfortable with one another and uh, a little looser and joking around more and, and that sort of thing. So it was uh, just a really entertaining um, and informative episode. Here's a fun teaser. You tune in next week, you'll get to find out why uh, perhaps, um, and we're talking about averages, but uh, perhaps it'll apply to you, why uh, some of your grandparents may have invested more in you as a child than others. Think about what, uh, which one of your grandparents you're closest with, which one you spent the most time with as a child, which ones possibly gave you um, the bigger gifts and that sort of thing. And uh, then tune in next week and find out if, uh, if God's predictions um, apply to you. So thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll talk with you then. say uh seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like <laughs> it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blowjump why mr seinfeld
I'd love having you fuck.